Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, worship team. And uh, I want to invite you this morning to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel 7. And as you do that, um, we want to start our time in the Word this morning with a bit of silence. I recognize, especially as we get closer and closer to Christmas, that one of the, one of the greatest gifts that we can give to you in our time together this morning is to carve out a little bit of space just to be still before the Lord. And so we're going to do that. As we prepare to hear His Word, I know that a lot of you have got a lot on your plate. Perhaps you've been running all month long and you've got more running to do this coming week. But right now, we're going to be still before the Lord. We're going to hear His Word. And so, in the next 30 seconds, let's just be quiet and invite the Lord to speak. We believe that when we open the Word of God and when we hear from Him, that He actually changes us. We believe that He does because He promises that He does. And so, I want to just invite you to invite Him to do that today in our midst. So let's, let's be still before him now. Man, God, we invite you to speak. Thank you for the opportunity we have to be still before you. And thank you for your promises that your word goes forth and it never returns void. That the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord, we believe that. Help our unbelief. And speak to us today, we pray, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. So I hope you have your Bible open to 2 Samuel 7. Um, I want to read a quote from Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher. He said, Christ is the great central fact in the world's history. To him, everything looks forward or backward. All the lines of history converge upon him. We believe that to be true. And in particular, as we zoom in on God's Word, we believe that all of the promises of the Word of God, all of the threads of promise point to Him. And that's why we're doing this series this Advent. We wanted to open up the Old Testament and to to take a moment to help you to, to see how all of these beautiful threads of promise, that's why we've got all this thread in our decor, these threads of promise that we trace in the Old Testament, they're all pointing forward to and finding their fulfillment in Jesus And so we began our series with the promise of Genesis 3.15, a promise that God made to our enemy. He said that a champion would come who would strike the serpent's head. So we considered that promise on week one. And then on week two, we flipped ahead to Genesis chapter 12 and zoomed in on verses one to three, where God picked up that thread of promise and he brought it forward and he spoke to a man named Abraham. And he said, Abraham, through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. A people who are living under the curse, through your seed, Abraham, will receive blessing. That's a reversal of the curse. Well, this morning, we're flipping ahead to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in terms of the, the chronological timeline, we're flipping ahead 730 years. Now, 730 years is a long time. You probably knew this. You didn't have to go to Bible college for that. But I want you to think about how long 730 years is, because these numbers, sometimes they merge together in our minds. Canada as a nation was founded in 1867, which means that we've existed as a country for a little over 150 years. So the the expanse of time between what we read last week and what we're reading today is like five times the existence of Canada as a nation. Here's what I want you to take away from that. It's long. This This is a long delay from what God promised to Abraham to the promise that we're going to pick up here in the life of David. Here we find King David, and he's in his palace, and he's, he's the king of the nation of Israel, which has descended from the, the seed of Abraham. And in his palace, as he has peace on every border, he's preparing to build a house for God. He's going to build a temple. 
It's going to set up a permanent place. And God speaks to David through the prophet Nathan. And that's our passage for this morning. But without further ado, let's read it. This is 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 8. We're going to read all the way to the end of verse 17. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living and active word to us today. Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So again, if I can kind of help you to picture this scene. David right now, he's the king of Israel. He's standing in his palace. And at this point, he has subdued all of the enemies that surround the people of Israel. They've laid claim for the land. The land is theirs. The enemy's been been knocked down, this is peace, this is everything that they've been waiting for, and it's looking like all the promises of God are now landing emphatically on David. And God speaks to David in this moment, and he, he picks up this theme of, of promise. So we want to begin with a quick question, what did God promise to David? Let's just walk through the text and see four things that God promised to David here. First of all, God promised David a great name. We see this in the second half of verse 9 where God says to David, I will make for you a great name, like the names of the great ones of the earth. Which, if you were with us last Sunday, this should be sounding very familiar, because this is almost verbatim the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12. In Genesis 12 too, we read, and I will make of you, to Abraham, God said, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. What are we meant to see? We're meant to see that 730 years later, this promise that God made to Abraham has not been forgotten. In fact, this this promise is going to be fulfilled. God speaks to David and he says, I haven't forgotten. I'm going to make for you a great name. There will be fame and respect and honor and it's going to find its fulfillment in the line of David. So that's the first piece of the promise. Second, and we're going to move quickly through these. Second, God promised David a land of peace. We see this in verses 10 to 11. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed you judges over my people Israel. 
and I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Now here in this second piece of the promise, again, this should be ringing a bell for us. This idea that God is going to provide a place for his people. If you remember from last week, we looked at Genesis 13, where God promised to Abraham, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. So again, 730 years later, God is speaking to David and he's picking up this promise that he made to Abraham and he's saying, I haven't forgotten. Now interestingly, last week we talked about how when God made this promise to Abraham, it sure seemed like an impossibility. Abraham was a nobody. He was just a guy. He was a sojourner. He he was married to his wife Sarah, at the time Sarai, and the Bible tells us she was barren. So he was just a guy with a wife, and they couldn't have children wandering in the land. God said, look up, look around, look everywhere. I'm going to give you all of this. And Abraham must have thought, this is all but impossible. Well, here's 730 years later, King David is standing in the palace, having subdued all of the, the nations around him. He possesses all of the land, and he's looking around probably thinking, this isn't impossible. This is, this is inevitable. This is going to happen. This is happening right now. A seed of Abraham has been given a great name among the nations. He has laid claim to the land that God promised him, and he has achieved peace on every border. So hear that promise, we see it, it's, it's like coming to fulfillment. We're thinking, perhaps this is the time. Now, everything we've talked about in the promise thus far is what we covered in the previous two weeks. But if, if you can think about this promise that we're tracking, um, we've talked about threads, but let's use the language of a snowball. So kids, you roll snowballs. What happens, Jojo, when, when you push the snowball? What happens to the snowball? It gets bigger or breaks. Well, this one's not going to break, but it is going to get bigger. It gets bigger with each push. And so we watched as it's been developing, and the same thing's going to happen here. God's taken this promise, and so far, it's looking like a familiar snowball. But with the, se- the third and the fourth parts of this promise, we're going to see it, it grow in mass, grow in expectation. The third thing that God promises to David is an eternal throne. This is a new addition to this snowball, and it's significant. Look at verses 12 to 13. He says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, in a world where thrones are frequently usurped and dynasties inevitably come to an end, this is an incredible promise. God says, I'm going, to, I'm going to maintain this throne. Now, when we read this, we read this as New Testament Christians, and we think about Jesus, and we think about this as a promise of, a, of an immortal king, but that's not how David would have heard this. I don't, I don't suspect that David was holding Solomon, thinking, you're going to be immortal. No, in fact, when God repeats this promise to Solomon, here's how he, he frames it to him. In 2 Chronicles 7.18, God says, I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man to rule Israel. So David, Solomon, the rest of the Israelites understood this to be a promise, not of, of immortality, but that the house of David, somebody from this line, would reign forever. So this new development in the promise triggers a change in the Old Testament, a significant change. 
Because now from here on out in the Old Testament, as you're reading through your Bible, you're going to see an emphasis on the king. And in particular, an emphasis on this line of David. Because now all of the expectations and the hopes of the Israelites are centering in on this throne. Okay, that's the third thing that we see, an eternal throne. And lastly, God promises to David a paternal relationship. Meaning he promises to David that he will relate to the kings in David's line in the same way that a father relates to his own sons. Which is remarkable. Look at verses 14 to 15. God says, I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. So God tells David, this throne that's going to be in your household, this son, this line of descendants, I'm going to relate to them differently than I did to the previous king, Saul. I'm going to be faithful to them. I'm going to be fatherly to them. And sometimes they're going to blow it, David. And when they blow it, I'm going to discipline them because I'm a good father. right? I'm not going to spare them from discipline. They'll feel the discipline, but I'm never going to remove my covenantal love from this line, David. I'll be a father to them, and they will be to me sons. And so in summary... This promise is a great name, a land of peace, an eternal throne, and a paternal relationship. And you say, is this important? And I'd say, it it sure is. So Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam wrote an important book on biblical theology called Kingdom Through Covenant. Here's what they say about this promise that we've just uncovered. They said the Davidic covenant is the epitome of the Old Testament covenants, a point often overlooked. It brings the previous covenants to a climax in the king who is the representative of Israel, the seed of Abraham, and an Adamic-like figure. So, I suspect at this point there are a few of you who are saying, why am I tracking here? What are you trying to show us? So let's use another analogy. Move away from the snowball for a moment. What's so important about this? Well, imagine for a moment that you've got like a target. Have you ever seen like a dartboard? So we're looking at a dartboard. And in Genesis 3.15, we were told that everything has gone wrong. Some, sin has been inserted into the system and it's broken, but God's going to fix it. He's going to send someone, a son of the woman, which means that our target is now a human. It's a big target. It says, keep your eyes open for a human that is coming. It's, okay, my eyes are open, I'm looking. Here's this big target. Now, in Genesis 12, God further narrows this target. He says that, the one that you're looking for is going to come from the family of Abraham. God just he picks out this family, mercifully lifts up this normal man, Abraham, and his wife, and God says, the son that you're looking for is going to come from this family. And we say, okay, so we're looking at this family. Now, Abraham's family became the nation of Israel. So we're thinking, it's going to, come, it's going to be someone from the nation of Israel, but still, that's a big target. Well, here in the Davidic covenant, what God does is he zooms it right into this bullseye He says he's going to be a human. He's going to be in this family from this nation and he's going to sit on this throne. He's going to be one of the sons of David, one of the kings who is a rightful heir to this throne. Well, that's important because now all of our longing, all of our expectation is fixated on this one mark. We're watching the throne, which is why as you read the Old Testament from here on, we're watching the throne with great anticipation and great longing, someday a king is going to come from this 
throne. And he is going to conquer our enemy and he is going to reverse the curse and he's going to restore to us everything that we lost. It will be a king from the line of David on this throne. And so we sit and we wait. And at this point, the promise we've been tracking seems to be on the brink of fulfillment. We've identified the family, we've identified the throne, and now we wait. And at 2 Samuel 7, if you're just reading through the Bible and you've never read before and you get to this point in the, in the text, you probably are thinking, we're not waiting for long. Because as we said, there's peace all around. They, the land is, is theirs. David, is, he's the king over the people. He's looking like the guy. He's got a great name. And so people are thinking, well, David must be the guy. And so they're all waiting with bated breath. The promises are landing. The peace is looking possible. And we're all optimistic. It can't get any better than this. But there was a problem. And so let's turn our attention to the problem. As we look for a king who's going to ultimately solve our problem, we have to remember what our ultimate problem really is. And if I could just press pause there for a moment. When we lose sight of what our actual ultimate problem is, we can really go off the mark. So let me apply that to your life for a moment. So many times, don't we convince ourselves that my, my problem is that, that I, I don't have a relationship to satisfy me. Or, or my problem is that I don't have enough money. Or my problem is that you know, I'm, in the, I'm in the wrong career. Or my problem is that I just need to get my education. So many times we've, we, fix our, we fixate on this problem and we think that's my ultimate problem. But then when we overcome that, we're, we're so disillusioned and discouraged because that wasn't your ultimate problem. So it's like whack-a-mole. You knock down that problem, but then there's another problem. And, and you're, you're always discouraged because you haven't gotten to the root of it. So it is with Israel. What is the ultimate problem that God needs to solve through this promised child? The great problem was, and our great problem is, the problem of sin. That's the problem. That's where everything went wrong. Therefore, the king that we're looking for needs to be an obedient king. He needs to be a king who can deal with the problem of sin. So God says, for example, in 1 Chronicles 28, 7, as David's playing a, praying a blessing for his son Solomon, and David's saying, God, let this be the one. Lord, pour out your blessing on him. Make him a great name. Make him the one through whom the blessings come. And God replies, I will establish his kingdom forever if he continues strong in keeping my commandments and my rules, as he is today. Meaning God is teaching a clear lesson to David and to the Israelites and to us as we read that the king that we need must be an obedient king. A disobedient king, a sinful king, will not and cannot be the one to set his people free because sin is the thing that got us here in the first place. And so if the king is just another one who's going to perpetuate the problem that got us here, then he certainly won't be the one who's going to lead us home. Sin's the reason why we're under this curse. Sin's the reason why the world is broken. Sin's the reason why my life is a mess, why the nation is a mess. Therefore, the king who will stand as the fulfillment of this promise that we've been tracking, the king who will be our champion, the king who will reverse the curse, must be a king who can deal once and for all with the problem of sin. Only a perfectly obedient king will do. And so while David was able to subdue all of the enemies that attacked from outside, David was unable to subdue the enemy that attacks from within. So four chapters after this glorious promise that God makes to David, four chapters after we're thinking that maybe the promises are landing right here, 
we come across the story of David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11. A story of horrifying sin. A, a, hor- a story of spectacular failure. And we come away from that story mindful of the fact that David will not be the king who reverses the curse. He's just as much a slave to sin as everyone who came before him. He's just as much a slave to sin as you and me. So we turn our attention away from David and we say, okay, well, let's look to the son of David, Solomon. And in Solomon, we find real reason for optimism. And as you read through the Old Testament, you know, Solomon is very much set up to be the fulfillment of the promise. They're writing in such a way that you're looking at Solomon and thinking, wow, this just might be the one. In 1 Kings 4.34, for example, we read, and the people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So remember Genesis 12? What is one of the things that this promised seed will do? He will be a blessing to the nations. Well, here we see Solomon, and he is positioned in such a way that he is actually being a blessing to all the nations. They're coming to him. They're learning from his wisdom. The temple is in place. People are coming to learn about God. Perhaps this is the son who will be the blessing to the nations. And yet, like his father before him, Solomon succumbed to sin. And I don't have time to explain all of the ways in which he failed, but 1 Kings 11 gives this summary. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And from here we watch as the the line of David just descends further and further into sin and ruin. With some positive notes along the way, but it's a graph that looks like this. And it's going down. Rehoboam takes over from his father, Solomon, And Rehoboam is more of a sinner than his father. And actually, under Rehoboam's reign, this united kingdom of Israel breaks into two. And you get the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So now this family of Abraham is a family at war with itself. It's divided. And and then the northern kingdom goes far from God, and they're wiped out by the Assyrians. And a a generation later, the southern kingdom is attacked by the Babylonians, and they're taken away into exile, and the temple that Solomon built is burned to the ground, and they don't have the land anymore, and they're in a foreign land. And we meet this king, Zedekiah, and he's the last Davidic king in the line. And we're holding on to this little flicker of a candle of promise. And here's what we read about Zedekiah in 2 Kings 25. It says they, being the Babylonians, they slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. So they take this king in the line of David and they show him his descendants, the ones who would be heirs to his throne, and they kill his descendants before his eyes and they pluck out his eyes so that that would be the last thing he sees and then they take him away from the land of promise to Babylon. And boy, in that moment, it sure looks like the promises of God have failed. That's what we're meant to see in that story. It sure looks like, like God has is, is either abandoned his people or God has forgotten altogether what he promised to his people. The great name of David that God promised he would have has become a joke. The peace that they had enjoyed is gone. The land that they had been given is ruled by other nations. The promise by all appearances has failed. And for 500 years after that, the throne of David sits vacant. Guess what I'm going to say about 500 years? It's a long time, right? It's hard for us to get our minds around this. 500 years is a very, very long time while the people sit in darkness, lamenting the fact that all of God's promises that they had hung all their hopes on seem to have failed. Again, if I could step aside from that for a moment. This is a recurring theme in the Bible, and, and for good reason. 
It's because, as we mentioned last week, to be a follower of Jesus is to be a person of faith. And a person of faith must look past their present circumstances to the promise of God in faith that he will keep his promise. So, for example, when the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and he tells them, he says, listen, these light and momentary afflictions are preparing for you a weight of glory. Our afflictions, I I don't think I've ever been through an affliction or seen someone go through an affliction that ever feels light or momentary. Right? It always feels like the hardest thing in the world, like this unending thing we're going through. The Apostle Paul says these, these, these are light and momentary, and they are preparing you for glory. He's teaching us that to be a Christian means sometimes you are slugging through the darkness and the mud, and, and it, it feels miserable and it feels long, but you're doing it because God said there's glory on the other side. So... Jesus, for example, and the author of the Hebrews said, we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. So he walked through the darkness just like he's called us to walk through the darkness. Why? Because there is joy that's set before him and he sees it. He sees that God is a promise keeper. And as we walk through the Old Testament, the people of God are consistently believing the promise, looking for the promise, while they walk through 730, 500 years of darkness. And I say that because in this room, undoubtedly, there are some of you who are in a a season of darkness. And perhaps from time to time, you find yourself inclined to look over at the person next to you and to compare your life with theirs. And you say, this is crazy. Like, I'm following God, but this has been the worst year of my life. And so he... Is he actually a promise keeper? Because this is, this is the worst. And then you look over to your left and you see this really happy family and everything seems to have come together for them. And you think, that's the way it's supposed to be. So obviously something, I'm broken or God doesn't actually love me or there's something off course. And what I would just encourage you with today is to stop comparing yourself to the person next to you and behind you and in front of you and to start holding up your life to the word of God, which is what he's called you to do. And as you look to the word of God, you see that the life of faith is a life of pressing onward and looking forward to the joy and letting good and kindred go and letting the the fleeting pleasures of this world go because it's a hard slog. It's a hard life at times. But there is glory that's coming. He is a promise keeper. And that's why we're doing this series this Christmas because we look back to the manger and we remember that, oh yeah, that 500 years of darkness did give way to a glorious light, didn't it? I want you to flip ahead in your Bible to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading in verse 26. I just want to give you a second to get there. So again, 500 years of longing. The the throne of David is an empty throne. The people have, have, they've been returned back to their land, but now that they're in their land, the land is occupied. They're like a vassal state paying tribute. They're always paying tribute to different groups, so right now they're paying tribute to the Romans. And yet in Luke chapter 1, verse 26, we we see this amazing story. I'm going to read all the way to verse 33. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Listen, of the house of David. Interesting detail to include. The virgin's name was Mary. He came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying 
and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, you've heard that before, and that's beautiful in its own right, isn't it? You know, you read that each Christmas, and that's beautiful. But when you've just considered God's promise in 2 Samuel 7, and you've looked at all of the ways, how glorious it was and how spectacularly it failed, doesn't it position you to hear that just a little bit differently? Mary, this Jewish woman, shaped by all of these longings and promises that we've been talking about, living in the the delay and the despair and the darkness, waiting and looking against hope for something. Suddenly the angel comes to her, and it almost sounds like his promise to her is, is a repeat of the promise that we just read in 2 Samuel 7. You will bear a son, Mary, and he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. He will be given the throne of his father, David, and he will reign forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And and suddenly you can see that all of these longings and expectations are being fulfilled in this beautiful, glorious moment to this unsuspecting woman in this unsuspecting town. Not only are they being met, but the expectations are actually being blown away. See, David expected, as we mentioned, that the, the, his descendants would carry the throne. You know, that it would perpetually be in his family. But in his wildest imagination, I don't think that David ever expected that I will have an immortal son sitting on the throne forever. And yet that's who Jesus is. The king who will never be succeeded. The king who will never pass on his throne to another. The king whose reign will be perfect and will be eternal. The immortal, invisible God. David knew that his descendant would be treated like a son. That was the promise, right? God would, would have this paternal love for the son. That he would, there would be a covenantal love. But in David's wildest imagination, did he ever think that, that somebody from his line would actually be the son of God? conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. Did did anyone see that coming? The author of the Hebrews writes, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. David knew that God was going to give them a, a place of peace But in his wildest dreams, did he ever expect the kind of peace that Jesus offers to us? The kind of peace that doesn't just subdue the nations around us. The kind of peace that subdues our eternal enemy. That can actually deal with our greatest enemy, which is death. And the sin that wields it. As I conclude this morning, and I'm coming to a close, I'm mindful of the fact that when you preach, and I I took these preaching classes, and they would always tell you that you should begin your sermon by touching on a felt need. Touch on a felt need. Let people know, like lean in and listen close because this speaks to this need. The felt need in this text is this. You need a king. I didn't hit on that at the beginning because I'm going to be honest with you. Most of you don't believe that to be true. Most of you do not think that what you need in your life is an authority, a ruler, somebody to tell you what to do, 
someone for you to bow to. We don't think that we need a king. And so with our conclusion this morning, I just want to humbly suggest to you that you couldn't be more wrong. You need a king. My generation has experienced more rest than perhaps any other generation in the history of the world. I think that's fair to say without exaggerating. We, at least for my generation, haven't endured a sleepless night worrying about the safety of our borders, worrying about the threat of war. That hasn't been our lived reality. For, for most of us, though there are exceptions in the room, I'm sure, for most of us, we probably haven't spent more than one or two nights worrying about will we have food to eat tomorrow. We, we've had more wealth that, than any people who ever lived before us. We have more technology. It, it would go beyond the, the wildest imagination of the generations before us. We have more toys, more leisure, more sex, more food, more fun. We, if you were to go back in time, perhaps to the time of Mary, or, or to go back even further to the time of David or the time of Abraham, if you were to go back in time and to just explain to an average Joe what your normal week looks like, by the time you were done describing your week, he would look at you and think that you were describing heaven. Wouldn't he? We are living in what they thought heaven would be. <laughs> but it's not heaven, is it? It's not heaven. We have everything that we thought we needed, everything we were told that we needed, and yet we are restless. Everything we were told we needed, yet my health fails, yet my kids rebel, yet these deep longings inside of me are never satisfied. To say nothing of the destructive habits in my life that I can't break, the selfishness in my life that I can't shake, the discouragement I feel when I look at this person staring back at me in the mirror and it's not who I thought it would be when I was a little boy or a little girl. And the world says, peace, peace. But I don't see it. And I would suggest to you, and God's word would suggest to you, that is because there is an enemy in your life that no worldly king can ever subdue. And until that enemy is dealt with, you will never have rest. So J.I. Packer once wrote, where Christ does not rule, sin does. Where Christ does not rule, sin does. Jumping back, remember we talked about this longing that they had? They were looking for the king, and maybe this is the king, but the problem was that if you take your eyes off of what the ultimate problem really is, then you won't be able to recognize the solution. What is the ultimate problem that Israel needed to solve? They needed someone to deal with sin. What is the ultimate problem in your life? What is the thing at the root of it, at the bottom, at the heart of the heart of, of what's wrong in your life and in mine? What's the problem? It, oh, it's just my, well, my spouse. They, just, they always let me down. If I had a spouse that didn't let me down, then my life would be perfect. Or it's this career. If I just had the career that I wanted, then my life would be, if I just had the money that that guy has, then my life would be perfect. We are living proof, our generation, that even if you whack down all of those moles and deal with all of those issues, something's still not right. Because what is the problem at the root and the root of it? It's sin. I have a sin problem. There's something inside of me, right at the core of me, that is distorted, that is broken, that is wrong, and it's in my wife, and it's in my kids, and it's in my prime minister, and it's in my boss, and everywhere I look around me, there's something that is distorted and broken. Therefore, what is the solution that I need? And I'm telling you today, you need a king 
who can deal with the problem of sin. You need a king who can deal with that sin once and for all. A king who can bring you out from under the curse so that you can receive and enjoy the blessing of God. You need a king who will lead you. You need to be led. You need a king who will subdue your enemy because you cannot subdue him. You need a king who can bring you into the true and lasting peace that you have not been able to obtain for yourself. The child that was born 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem was the fulfillment of ancient promises. That's what we've been considering. He's also the fulfillment of every longing inside of your heart. You need a king, and the king has come, and his name is Jesus. So this Christmas, I want to issue an invitation to everyone in this room. It's an invitation from the king himself. You've heard this before, but let me read this again. Jesus invites you. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is the only king who can offer you that kind of rest. Because Jesus is the only king who has the authority and the ability to subdue the true enemy of your soul. So come. This morning, this Christmas, I want to invite all of us. Come, let us worship our king. Let us declare his greatness. Let us submit and delight in his leadership. Let us trust in his provision. And let us find our rest in him. And then let us go and tell it on the mountains and over the hills and everywhere that Jesus Christ is born. The king has come. To that end, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you. God, we love you. God, I thank you for the examples that you've given to us in your word to teach us lessons that, Lord, we're very slow to learn. Lord, the lesson of patience is a lesson that I I confess and I imagine many in this room can confess we're slow to learn. Lord, the problems that we face do not feel light and they don't feel momentary. Lord, some people in the room have been struggling with an illness for 10 years. Some people in the room have been praying for a lost loved one for 30 years. Some people in the room have been wrestling with besetting sin for 40 years. Lord, and everyone in this room is longing for the fulfillment of all that you have promised to us. You told us that the day would come when you would return and you would reign and you would once for all set everything right. You've promised that the day will come when you will wipe every tear from our eyes and the night will be no more and and you will be the light for us. A day will come when you will once and for all deal justly with the sin that ruins our lives and ruins this world and you will put in place a new heaven and a new earth and you will reign. And we long for that day, God. But we also acknowledge, and Lord, help us to remember that until that day, we have work to do. Lord, there are lost people all around us, perhaps even in this room, who, who perhaps they haven't heard of the king. Perhaps they don't know that they need a king. Lord, perhaps they've been living in the darkness for so long that they don't even recognize the light. But Lord, I pray that the people who are walking in darkness would see a great light this Christmas. Lord, I pray that for each of us, and I pray that for all of the places where you're going to send us this week, 
Lord, give us eyes to see the broken and the weary and the lost. And Lord, let us point them to Jesus and extend the invitation of rest and peace and life. Lord, I ask for the help of your spirit right now that if there is someone here today who's, who's just feeling the call from you, that by the power of your spirit, you would help them to confess their sin and lay it down. Lord, that they would see with eyes of faith that Jesus came to take their sin and to bear it in himself and to remove it from them as far as the east is from the west. Lord, I pray that you would bring about repentance by the help of your spirit. And then, Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would bring faith. Lord, that in this moment, they would be able even without having talked to the person with them or talked to anyone else, that just with the work of your Spirit in their heart, Lord, they would have the eyes of faith to see that Jesus Christ is their life, is their hope, and that through him and in him they live. God, I just pray for that work to be done right now in this room. God, we, we celebrate the fact that you have worked 100 miracles represented in this room. 100 people who were dead in sin are now alive. God, so we're asking for more. We're asking for one more miracle or two more or three more. God, would you bring dead people to life today? So, Lord, we love you. Help us as we respond to you in worship. Lord, I thank you for your greatness, your kindness. Thank you that you're the king that we need. Lord Jesus, we love you. And it's our honor and our privilege and our delight to serve you and to bow before you. In Jesus' name, everyone said. Amen. Amen. Worship team, would you lead us?